My name is Saeed Mahmoudi. I am professor of international law emeritus at Stockholm University in Sweden. The title of my lecture is Self-Defense and Unwilling or Unable States. Uh, this concept, the concept of unwilling or unable states, uh, is a rather new concept in international law. In fact, as regards its application in the context of self-defense um, against non-state actors' armed attacks from the territory of another state, uh, it's only two decades that we have used this term. Uh, it was only after the 9-11 events that uh, it found some currency in the dialogue of international law. Uh, I'm going to speak today um, in this lecture about the status of this uh, concept in inter international law, its legal status, and also uh, it, the consequences of its acceptance in international law as a legal concept for the uh, United Nations system on the law of use of force and prohibition of use of force in international law. Uh, I have thought of uh, starting by giving you a very brief uh, background of the developments of international law prior to 9-11 events as regards this relation between uh, self-defense and non-state actors armed attacks. Uh, before 9-11, it was generally accepted in international law that the legal response to cross-border violence of non-state actors was countermeasures uh, short of force and uh, as enforcement measures. Uh, use of force against uh, non-state actors' armed activities was accepted if uh, two conditions were fulfilled. The first thing was that the armed attacks of the non-state actors had to be significant, and also, or more importantly, there had to be a link between that non-state actor and the state in whose territory that non-state actor was located. It had to be established, this link had to be established before exercising the right of self-defense. The test of the link was the concept of effective effect, effective control. That means that one had to establish that the state in whose territory a non-state actor was active had effective control over the non-state actor. What uh, the concept of unwilling or unable uh, has done or is meant to, be, to, to do is that to do away uh, with these 
criteria. That means uh, the criteria of the link, uh, or at least to play down this, uh, the significance of this link. The purpose is that even when the non-state actors' armed activities cannot be attributed to a state, still, the victim state should have the right to self-defense against those armed attacks. With this in mind, you can imagine that this concept is a controversial concept. And con it's controversial on two grounds, in fact. Uh, that the reason is that the first reason for its uh, being controversial is that a state that has evidently no relation with a non-state group, but is deemed by the victim state as unwilling or unable to prevent that group's armed attacks from its territory, can be exposed uh, to the use of force in self-defense. Uh, it's also controversial because presumption of a state's unwillingness or inability uh, requires an assessment of that state's internal politics, something that may be in variance with uh, the most fundamental principles of international law, namely sovereignty and equality of all states and the right to territorial integrity. The problem of uh, cross-border irregular attacks of armed groups was, of course, well known to the drafters of the United Nations Charter, but was, I may um, uh, claim, that it was intentionally ignored uh, due to the state-centric nature of the Charter. Attribution of substantial attacks by irregular forces to a state was a means of using force in response to that state. However, even when the attack was not substantial, it was considered to be covered by the prohibition of the use of force in Article 2.4 of the Charter. This was particularly the case during the 1960s and 1970s, when armed support of a state to national liberation movements for cross-border attacks was discussed by states within the UN system. Paragraph 2 of the General Assembly Declaration on Inadmissibility of Intervention in the domestic affairs of states and the protection of their independence and sovereignty from 1965, uh, says the following, I quote, no state shall organize, assist, foment, finance, incite, or tolerate subversive terrorist or armed activities directed towards the violent overthrow of the regime of another state." End of quote. 
1970 Friendly Relations Declaration reiterates uh, in its principle one uh, the content of Article 2, 4 of the UN Charter and states, I quote, every state has the duty to refrain in its international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. End of quote. In paragraph 8 of the same uh, principle 1 of the Friendly Relations Declaration, it is stated that, I quote, every state has the duty to refrain from organizing or encouraging the organization of irregular forces or armed bands, including mercenaries, for incursion into the territory of another state. End of quote. To prevent the possibility of use of force, allegedly in as self-defense, the last paragraph of the same principle provides, I quote, nothing in the foregoing paragraphs shall be construed as enlarging or diminishing in any way the scope of the provisions of the Charter, and here they, they mean, of course, both prohibition of use of force and the right of self-defense in Article 51, concerning cases in which the use of force is lawful, end of quote. Self-defense against non-state actors was also a core issue uh, in the discussions on the definition of aggression during 1967-1974. Developing countries generally um, were of the view that self-defense is ap applicable only against armed attacks by states. On the other hand, Western countries uh, believed that self-defense is applicable even against indirect aggression, such as organizing, supporting, or directing armed bands that make incursions into another state, organizing acts of terrorism in another state, organizing subversive activities aiming at violent overthrow of a foreign state government. However, the majority of states uh, came to the conclusion that most of the named activities constituted breach of peace and not armed attack. Thereby, they included the uh, possibility of self-defense. The compromise also was reached to accept uh, the concept of or the act of sending of armed groups as a basis for uh, using force in self-defense. That means that if a foreign state send uh, armed groups to another state, uh, it was uh, accepted that this is an act of aggression. And entitles the victim state to defend himself, itself by self-defense. 
United States wanted also a reference in this definition to open and active participation of, uh, of the state. Uh, after some discussions, a compromise was uh, um, reached uh, and became the, uh, the vague expression of substantial involvement, which is mentioned in the definition of aggression. Uh, Article 3G of the definition of aggression is directly relevant to the question of armed attacks by non-state actors. It reads, I quote, sending by or on behalf of a state of armed groups which carry out acts of armed force against another state of such gravity as to amount to the acts listed above or substantial involvement. And by activities listed above, uh, they mean invasion, bombardment, blockade of the ports. If a non-state actor uh, carry out such activities, that is considered as armed attack. The need for gravity of the armed attack and the substantial involvement of the state represented the attitude of states towards self-defense against non-state actors' attacks at that time. But even the definition of aggression which was agreed upon in 2010 within the context of the ICC statute uh, reflects the same criteria. Gravity and substantial involvement exclude the possibility of use of forcible response to isolated and small-scale attacks. Uh, bear harboring or assisting an armed group cannot thereby justify self-defense. It's not enough. Then speaking about the developments in this area before 9-11, in the period before 9-11, uh, one should definitely mention uh, the judgment of International Court of Justice in the famous case, the Nicaragua case, 1986. In this case, which was uh, between Nicaragua and the United States, uh, ICJ repeated the criterion of sending and the criterion of gravity and also substantial involvement for attribution of an activity to the territorial state. The court rejected that supply of arms and other supports to armed groups may be equated with armed attack. Uh, in this case, again, the court uh, was of the view that the relation of the United States to Contras, that is the opposition group which was fighting against Nicaragua from countries around Nicaragua, the relation of the United States to Contras was not that of dependence. And the United States did not exercise such a control on Contras that one could say Contras acted as U.S. 
on U.S. behalf, only, and the court emphasized that, only effective control could make the United States responsible for wrongful act. So the court's view was that it was not really a question of effective control. This concept of effective control uh, entered into the um, discussion of international law and uh, has been commented on uh, by many people, uh, many who have criticized it and many who insist to keep it. Uh, what happened about this concept, which is referred to in many other cases, effective control, uh, was that uh, later on in 1999, uh, International Criminal Tribunal for U Former Yugoslavia, ICTY, uh, challenged this concept, this standard, in the Tadic case. Uh, ICTY meant that this concept was not persuasive on two reasons, for two reasons. First, it was not in harmony with the logic of the law of state responsibility. Second, it was at variance with judicial and state practice. So ICTY meant that to help us to hold a state responsible for wrongful acts of individuals, state must have given specific instructions, whereas a state can be responsible for the acts of military units or armed groups if state has overall control over them. Uh, in this way, uh, ICTY substituted effective control with the concept of overall control, uh, lowered down, so to say, uh, the criteria. Both ICJ and International Law Commission, ILC, uh, insisted um, on effective control standard uh, in the uh, period after 1999, after the Tadic case. So they did not accept the uh, proposal or the decision of ICTY in the, on this question. Uh, they, both ICJ and uh, ILC, confirmed the effective control after the Tadic case. Both stressed the ICTY's mandate was directed to individual criminal responsibility, not state responsibility. ILC, in Article 8 of Draft Articles on State Responsibility, included uh, ICJ's reasoning in the Nicaragua case as regards attrib attribution of conduct of a group of persons to a state. Uh, ICJ reiterated its position, its criteria, from Nicaragua case uh, later on in 2007 in its judgment in the prevention of genocide case and rejected ICTY's overall control argument as unpersuasive.
So the result of the ILC and ICJ statements is that an armed attack by an irregular group could not be attributed to a state unless the group was under complete dependence of that state or if the attack had been carried out under instructions, direction, or control of that state. Attacks of armed groups from other states have regularly been called as terrorist attacks. But uh, Al-Qaeda's attacks against the U.S. embassies in Kenya and in Tanzania in 1998 was uh, indeed classical examples of genuine terrorist attacks. Uh, one more thing that I have to say before I move to period after 9-11 is that both Turkey and Iran uh, during the 1990s uh, carried out a number of attacks against Kurdish opposition group, particularly PKK, in the territory of Iraq, in northern Iraq. Again, they were, these were examples of uh, self-defense against non-state actors, armed attacks. And with that, I would now like to move into the period after 9-11-2001, when the terrorist attacks against the United States took place. Uh, the immediate reactions to these uh, horrible attacks uh, was from the Security Council, which uh, in less than 24 hours adopted its first resolution, Resolution 1368. And in that resolution, uh, the Council stated the following, I quote, Security Council determined to combat by all means threats to international peace and security caused by terrorist acts, recognizes the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense in accordance with the Charter, expresses its readiness to take all necessary steps to respond to the terrorist attacks of 11 September 2001. End of quote. Reference to self-defense in this context was novel in two ways. First, it was implied that a terrorist act was not only directed against the interest of a state, as was the case before but also against the state as such. Second, for the first time, Security Council referred in a resolution about the combat against international terrorism to self-defense. All necessary steps was a reference to the use of military force 
although the attack had been carried out by a hijacked civil or by some hijacked civil aircraft. The right, of, the right to self-defense was reaffirmed in a new resolution, Resolution 1373, two weeks later. And uh, the United States, together with the United Kingdom, uh, launched Operation Enduring Freedom against Afghanistan on, or against the Taliban regime in Afghanistan on 7 October 2001. Um, the United States reported its military operations to the Security Council and in that report uh, the following is mentioned, I quote, the attacks on 11 September 2001 and the ongoing threat to the United States and its nationals posed by the Al-Qaeda organization have been made possible by the decision of the Taliban regime to allow the parts of Afghanistan that it controls to be used by this organization as a base of operation. End of quote. Reactions, other reactions uh, included NATO um, approval of United States right to self-defense, Organization of American States, European Union, and of course many states uh, who supported the United States. Uh, organization of American states uh, expressly referred to the United States' right of self-defense. Organization of Islamic Cooperation, at that time it was called Organization of Islamic Conference, which is an organization of all Islamic countries, today 57 countries, uh, called for an urgent meeting in Doha, in Qatar, four days after uh, the American and United Kingdom attack against Afghanistan. And in that meeting in Doha, uh, a communique was issued. This communique was silent on the question of the legality of uh, military operations against Taliban. It only referred to the rights of all states, uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity, and the support of the organization of all Islamic states, and of course condemnation of any terrorist acts, including the ones that had happened on 11th of September. Responses of scholars and academics uh, to this event, 9-11 events, can be put into two groups. Uh, one group consists of those scholars who have an expansive approach, uh, an expansive approach to the question of use of force and to international law as such. In their view, the military operations of self-defense by the United States and United Kingdom was a moment of law creation. 
And they meant that there was no need anymore to the Nicaragua attributability requirements. On the other hand, the group of scholars who are called uh, scholars with restrictive approach to the use of force, they uh, underlined the exceptional context of the operation. They considered it as an exception. And they meant that there was no change in the content of Article 51 of the United Nations Charter in the right of self-defense, thereby meaning that still we had to limit the self-defense to the state-to-state -state relation. The United States relied in its report to the Security Council on the harboring doctrine. The reason was that uh, criteria of attribution that International Law Commission had worked out, uh, and particularly Article 8, which was directly relevant to the question of non-state attacks, could not be availed in this case. Harboring doctrine was introduced as an alternative criterion, although it had been rejected by ICJ in the Nicaragua case, and also uh, it was uh, rejected by states when they were negotiating for the Friendly Relations Declaration. So it was a, not a new doctrine, but it had been rejected earlier. Uh, and in this case, uh, as I mentioned, um, was availed by the United States as a basis for self-defense. One can say that those commentators who have an expansive approach to international law uh, were of the view that applicability of the Nicaragua criteria, criteria was not any longer limited to attacks on armed groups, but also extended to the infrastructure of the Literal, uh, territorial state or hostile state. Substantial involvement now included even harboring or aiding and abetting of non-state actors that conducted cross-border attacks. In this way, they really increased the scope of, um, of Article 51 use of force in self-defense. The other group, those with restrictive approach, uh, meant that self-defense against non-state actors per were permitted only when the attack is almost of the same magnitude as the attacks of 9-11. So they insisted that uh, normal cross-border uh, conflicts and armed uh, activities uh, are not enough for triggering the right of self-defense. The consequences of 9-11 on the development of self-defense with respect to non-state actors' armed attacks uh, 
must be viewed and analyzed uh, uh, in state practice, in the doctrine of international law, in uh, judicial decisions of particular international court of justice, and of course, uh, in some documents uh, that were published after uh, 9-11, uh, normally initiated by uh, private people uh, or interested people, both lawyers and non-lawyers, uh, which really affected the, or had an impact on the discussion about uh, self-defense against non-state actors. I'm going in the following to uh, focus on these um, aspects, on these three, four aspects of development of the law on armed uh, on the law of self-defense against non-state actors after 9-11. Let me start by the practice of International Court of Justice. Since uh, 2001, uh, International Court of Justice has had the possibility of dealing with at least uh, with this question, the question of use of force in self-defense, uh, in three cases. Two of these cases are directly relevant for the question of non-state actors and self-defense against them. The very first case was decided two years after 9-11. That was the oil platforms case, 2003. Um, in this case, it was not a question of non-state actors, but still, the pronouncements of the court on the question of self-defense uh, uh, are important, and sh they show uh, how the court uh, generally interpret the issue of use of force in international relations. The court pronouncements about a state's burden of proof as regards the existence of an armed attack, the intention of the other state to attack the victim state, and the sufficient gravity of the attack to qualify, to qualify it as armed attack according to Article 51, all these things showed the court's continued restrictive approach to the question of use of force. Uh, it was already known in the Nicaragua case that the uh, court has a very restrictive approach. They don't want to open the possibility for use of force. So it was reiterated in the oil platforms case very expressly. But it was in 2004 uh, when the court found an opportunity to opine directly on the question of self-defense against non-state actors. It was an advisory opinion, the so-called wall advisory opinion, uh, which was requested by the General Assembly uh, from ICJ. And the reason was that uh, the government of Israel had decided at that time to construct wall, security walls, in the occupied Palestinian territory. And the question that 
General Assembly posed or st uh, posed to the court was whether this decision of constructing the wall was uh, in harmony with international law or not. It was the first occasion for the court, actually, after 9-11, to deal with this question of self-defense against non-state actors. And it was less than three years after 9-11 uh, that this opinion came. Paragraph 139 of the opinion says the following, I quote, Article 51 of the Charter recognizes the existence of an inherent right of self-defense in the case of armed attack by one state against another state. However, Israel does not claim that the attacks against it are imputable to a foreign state. Uh, is, end of our quote. Israel had claimed that attacks come from um, Palestinian liberation organization and other Palestinian groups. So it was not a question of attacks from another state. At the same time, Israel had uh, invoked in this uh, opinion, or in this case, uh, that um, the situation of law has changed because Security Council already threw resolutions 1368 and 1373 has established that every state has the right of self-defense against non-state actors' attacks. So this was uh, an argument of, for justification of the, um, of the construction of the war. Uh, the court uh, stated as answer to this uh, argument that Israel exercises control in the occupied Palestinian territory and the possible threat originates within and not outside that territory. The situation is, according to the court, different from the contemplated, uh, from, from that contemplated by the Security Council in the named resolutions. And uh, the end of quote. The uh, court concluded in this way that Article 51 had no relevance in this particular case. Uh, again, we see that. Uh, it's a very restrictive approach to the use of force. Thus, despite expectations that changed world picture after 9-11 had created, the court repeated its restrictive and conservative interpretation of self-defense according to Article 51. The opinion of the court was criticized, um, which is not uh, unexpected, uh, by many people, but even with some, by some judges of the court. Uh, for example, Judge Koimans, uh, in his uh, separate opinion, paragraph 35, uh, mentioned the following, I quote, the Security Council called acts of international terrorism without any further qualification. 
a threat to international peace and security which authorizes it to act under Chapter 7 of the Charter. And it actually did so in Resolution 1373 without ascribing these acts of terrorism to a particular state. End of quote. The majority judges in the court were mindful of 9-11 and, of course, uh, more mindful of the United States military operations in Iraq 2003, just a few months before this opinion was given. They were, the majority was more concerned about the undue expansion of the possibility of use of force, uh, and that's why they formulated the opinion the way they did it. The next occasion the court had uh, to uh, opine on this uh, issue was in the Armed Activities case, 2005. Uh, this case was between Uganda and Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. The main finding of the court in this case, as far as the question that I'm speaking about is concerned, is paragraph 146 of the judgment. And I quote, There was no evidence that the attacks of which Uganda had been the victim emanated from armed bands sent by or on behalf of the DRC in the sense of Article 3G in the definition of aggression. Even if the series of attacks could be taken cumulatively, they were not attributable to the DRC. So, very clearly, the, court, the courts refuses to accept that armed attacks from the territory of Congo against Uganda can be considered attributable to Congo uh, on several grounds. But there was another issue also in this case which was very important, and that was the question of duty, to, duty of due diligence. Uganda had claimed that Congo had not uh, carried out or fulfilled its duty of due diligence. Uh, Uganda meant that DRC had failed to fulfill this uh, duty. The court uh, referred to this duty as duty of vigilance, which is the same as duty of due diligence and implied that duty of vigilance is in fact a duty of conduct, not of result. So if a state does its best to prevent an attack by non-state actors, but does not succeed to stop it, it does not make that state responsible. That was what the court meant. Judge Sima wrote a separate opinion in this case and criticized the court 
in its par paragraph 11. I quote, again, it's about resolution 1368 and resolution 1373, which was invoked by Uganda. I quote what Judge Sima said in paragraph 11. Security Council resolutions 1368 and 70, 1373 cannot but be read as affirmations of the view that large-scale attacks by non-state actors can qualify as armed attacks within the meaning of Article 51. So, uh, he was very clear on this issue, had a different view from the court. Uh, at the same time, one of the other judges in the majority, Judge Koroma, uh, mentioned in his declaration, I quote, if a state is powerless to put an end to the armed activities of rebel groups, despite the fact that it opposes them, that is not tantamount to use of armed force by that state, but a threat to the peace, which calls for actions by the Security Council." End of quote. In this way, the court maintained its uh, restrictive approach and underlined that Article 51 is applicable for attacks which are imputable to states, and nothing more. ICJ position in the Wall opinion and in armed activities case show that no change in the scope of Article 51 has been recognized by the World Court. I thank you.